Hey, welcome to a new episode of Last Call Baseball, number 142. I'm Dorian. You know I've been watching baseball over the last two months. Where are they playing baseball? The Latin American Winter League, specifically the Nicaraguan Winter League. It's over. Just about like three days ago, I think. The team Gigantes de Rivas, the giants from the town of Rivas, won the championship. It's their second one in four years, and they beat in the championship series Tren del Norte, Train of the North, in six games. Obviously, the team that I wanted to win the whole thing, the Tigers, the Tigres de Chinandega, the Tigers from Chinandega, didn't make it. To, they made it to the round-robin playoffs, but they didn't win the championship. But I'm going to share with you some thoughts. If you didn't have a chance to enjoy the Nicaraguan Winter League over the past three months, or maybe you've been enjoying the Venezuelan Winter League, the Puerto Rican League, the Dominican League, the Mexican, etc. Initially, I think the team, the defending champions from the previous winter, the Bo- uh, Indios del Boer, uh, in- the Indian Boers, actually like from the Boer War. It's one of the oldest baseball clubs in the world, actually. People actually don't know that. They're based in Managua, the capital of Nicaragua. This team has some of the worst, I think, arguably the worst fans in all of Nicaragua. No one shows up to the stadium. No one. They play in Dennis Martinez Stadium. And if you guys might remember, Dennis Martinez is one of the greatest Latin American pitchers of all time. He's Nicaraguan. He pitched for the Baltimore Orioles, the Montreal Expos, where he threw a perfect game. He pitched for the Atlanta Braves. He pitched for a whole mess of clubs. Very, very good pitcher. And in Nicaragua, they built the Dennis Martinez Stadium, which is actually the national stadium, to MLB specifications. I think the stadium holds something like seventeen or 20,000 seats. It's beautiful. Look at it. You look at it on TV, and it's, it's I was like, oh, that must that's probably some random MLB stadium that I haven't been to or some really nice minor league, team, minor league stadium that I haven't been to. Boat finished last in the Nicaraguan Winter League, so they didn't, they didn't make it to the round-robin playoffs. But... Here I am picking on the fans saying that they don't show up. To be fair, during one of the games, the announcers were commenting how expensive it is for just one person to attend a game at that stadium, much less a family of four or five. And when you think about it, it's like, is it really any different than in the U.S. when you're like, oh, I have to pay $20 for the cheap seats for your kids, your niece, your grandchildren, some someone you're babysitting? And then you have to go buy an $11 soda, a $15 hot dog. God forbid you go to a place where that doesn't have public transportation. You're paying, what, $20, $30 to park at the stadium? So I get it. I, I, I get it. But it's still very, I can feel, I feel the pain from the Boed fans who probably would are like, you know what, I'd rather just sit on my couch Drink a nice Nicaraguan rum, Flor de Caña, or a nice Nicaraguan lager and have the game on TV because it costs a lot less than schlepping it out to this beautiful stadium. Another thought I've been sharing with you, watch the Latin American Winter Leagues. They're so much fun. What's crazy about all of the Latin Winter Leagues? They're ruthless. And this is what I mean by being ruthless. If you're a player that's cut or waived by the team, you're cut from the whole league. It's not like no one else can pick you up. As an example, let's say you're Jace Peterson and you get cut by whatever team he's with. He's in a, in a week or so, he can't just get picked up by the Kansas City Royals. In Venezuela, in Colombia, 
in the Dominican Republic, everywhere in Latin America. You're gone from the whole league. That is insane. Because a lot of times these foreigners go and get paid big bucks to go play in Mexico. And they're like, you know, after a couple of weeks, we're going to have to let you go. So your contract gets canceled and you're going to have to find your way back home because no, because it's against league rules for another team in this league to sign you. So a lot of times when they're, when these teams, when these clubs are picking up reinforcements, they're getting them from the Mexican league, from the Venezuelan league, from the Dominican league, just anyone from another country has to come and it's ruthless. I'm like, wow, maybe they need a players unit or something in these, in these Latin countries. Another impression I have is, in Nicaragua at least, is the level of pitching leaves something to be desired. And what I mean is there aren't a lot of good pitchers plying their trade in Nicaragua. I hope the clubs next year entice better pitchers to pitch in the league because it's fun to see these absolutely wacky 12 to 9 games or like a month or so ago I told you guys about that insane Tigres versus Leon game where Tigres was up twice in the same game by eight runs and they ended up losing 16 to 15 it was just this that's the type of stuff to make your brain melt I love the offense I love the passion I just love watching good baseball but I want the pitching to be a little bit better and I think part of the problem is may not be the money. I don't. I don't. I don't know how much money these players make. Whether I know the the leagues that pay the most are the Dominican Republic and I believe Venezuela. I'm not sure, but the Nicaraguan league needs to improve their facilities. And they were also saying that next year they're going to start enhancing some of the the stadiums to have like pitch clocks and the the radar gun, so you can actually see how fast or how hard some of the pitchers are throwing. And I'm like, let's throw some like good coats of paint as well let's refurbish the seats because you can see them they're like kind of like kind of janky looking but obviously you're looking at it with american eyes and you go to a major league baseball stadium and they're most of them are at least comfortable to sit in and they're, they're fine it's still good baseball and seriously if the mexican winter league and the dominican winter league weren't behind paywalls i'd watch those games as well the reason i watch the nicaragua winter baseball league is because it's free on youtube <laughs> Why not? And you can it can help you with your Spanish as well because the commentate the, the obviously the TV the TV transmission is obviously all in Spanish, and it's still good professional baseball. And some of those guys, you had the I think three or four Americans were playing in in Nicaragua this winter. Jayless, uh, the league leader in steals, Jerison Richards, Jerison Richards. I don't know. He's American. He's he has he's a redhead. He has he has a red beard. He won an award for having the most steals. I think he stole twenty something bases this year. And they had this American pitcher. I forget his name. They had another American outfielder who came over from Venezuela. Uh, Cade Goda. He was center field. He played he played for a few games in center field for the eventual champions, Rivas de what is it the Gigantes de Rivas. I say this every single year. It drives me insane that the MLB network does not show the Latin winter leagues. Like I said, from all the countries I've been mentioning over the past five minutes, I don't care about talking heads on MLB network going over the hot stove. I don't care. I don't care to see Airbud 5 fetch this for the 10th time in the summer or in the wintertime, excuse me. Enough with the talking heads on MLB Network. Enough with the film Major League Four, Out of Retirement. 
I'm done. Show the Latin Winter Leagues on MLB Network. It's a perfect marriage. A lot of those guys were or are still minor league prospects playing and getting extra at-bats, getting extra innings in these competitive Latin leagues. Some of those guys are ex-major league baseball players. These are guys that you, if you squint your eyes, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that guy on Team X. I'm going to wrap it up by saying cheers to the Gigantes, the Giants of Rivas on their Nicaraguan championship. I always encourage you to watch good baseball, whether it's in the U.S., Canada, Latin America, Asia. And our next guest did a baseball project in a different country. But before we get to that conversation, I do want to apologize for the audio on my part. Again? I know. It's completely operator error. You see, Last Call Baseball is a, it's a family affair. You know, I have 300 of my closest family members. I'm joking. Who the heck has 300 family members? Like you're a sultan in the Ottoman Empire. This is a family affair. So everyone is entitled to 12 weeks of vacation. And it just so happens that over this over the winter time now, when I recorded some of these conversations, everyone's off and I'm doing it on my own. And to make it short, I hit the wrong button. We've taken care of that problem. Thankfully, you can hear our guests perfectly because that's the reason I do these conversations, to hear the other person speak. This week, the special guest is Harry Zimmerman, an LA-based photographer. Harry, welcome to Last Call Baseball. Thanks, Dorian. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. You know, Harry, everyone is saying that during the pandemic, everyone was fleeing California, specifically LA. But we've now had Shohei Otani move from Anaheim to Los Angeles. We've just had uh, the Japanese phenom pitcher Yoshinobu Yamamoto move from Japan to LA. You've lived in LA for a long time. What makes LA so great? I think the short answer would be variety and competition for the entertainment dollar. Teams really need to, because there are so many teams in the LA market, you've got the Angels, the Dodgers, the Rams, the Chargers, USC, UCLA, the Ducks, the Kings. That's a lot of teams, plus the Sparks, you know, the the women's basketball teams. And I think to me, what I've seen is that you've really got to pull out all stops to survive in this market. And I think that's what the Dodgers have realized uh, some years ago and uh, why they've uh, been on top for so long. And I think that there's a lot of competition uh, for the sports and for things to do because L.A. is you've got the beach, you're close, you're an hour and a half away from skiing, you're near the desert. There's a lot of things to do. And I, and I think that teams that are serious about uh, making a name, like the, the Rams have done it too, uh, with what they've done in free agency and how they got to a Super Bowl a few years ago. So um, the teams that, it, it forces teams to really strategize for the long term. You, you touched upon LA is fantastic, not just for entertainment, but also I think LA is as crazy as it sounds. LA is an underrated food city. It's arguably better than New York. And people were saying that everyone was fleeing California and LA. But in reality is like once you spend time in LA and you're you were willing to pay the tax of living there. And it's it, two different two different cities, New York City. Everyone complains about New York City. But not a lot of people leave because they're like, where am I going to go? Like, I'm, yeah, I can go move to I don't know Nashville or New Jersey the, the, or, or somewhere in South Florida. But 
I love LA. And especially if you're having some of these ball players, they have a certain means. It's a lot easier to swallow the, the tax bill and say, I'm living in paradise. So why wouldn't I? That's right. The food thing, LA really uh, has made a name for itself with some very special chefs now. Uh, but really, um, the comfort food restaurants that have been here forever, uh, that could that you could uh, say are are in direct competition, if you will, with with some of the with the reputation at least of some of New York's. For instance, uh, pizza now, uh, delis, uh, you know, classic Jewish delis like Langer's Delicatessen near downtown LA. Their number nineteen pastrami. Uh, is something I dream about and uh, maybe going there with a friend soon. And uh, LA, you know, pizza, pizza you know, LA, um, or rather New York, uh, Chicago, Philly, yeah, you know, I'll give them that they still have the reputation for pizza and probably deservedly so, but LA is still the land of the burger. And when I was a college student at USC, we used to scrape our uh, pennies, nickels, and dimes and quarters uh, when we were living wretchedly as college students. Uh, to go to Tommy's original uh, chili burger uh, down on Rampart, uh, Third and Rampart, uh, and Tommy's is a chain, um, a local chain. I think there might be one in Vegas actually now, but uh, that makes these incredible chili burgers, real gut bombs. If you're drinking late at night or studying hard and you want to go down there and really have a great chili burger, chili cheese fries, oh boy, that you can't beat Tommy's. I have to check out Tommy's because. I thought for a second you were going to talk about uh, you know in and out, which I'm I'm actually I, this may be heresy on the West Coast. I think uh, Shake Shack is better than In and Out, but I am going to check out Tommy's because I haven't had a chili burger or yeah, what is chili fried yeah. burger? We say yeah, chili burger. Yeah, Harry. The reason I asked you to come on was to talk a little bit about another place that has great food, Japan, and specifically as a photographer, you did the uh, you did a uh, it's called the Fanatic Project about. Well, tell us about tell us about uh, the fanatic project that you did in Japan. Sure, my love of photography. Well, I I used to work in film. I I went to film school, and I've always felt that I've been more visually orientated than anything else. And I wanted to work on my own projects. And still going back to the basics after a career in film as a camera assistant on feature films for almost thirty years. I, um, when I got out of doing that, when I retired from that, I found that still photography was something that I could do that I could do it on my own and I could explore certain things that interested me, uh, certain loves and passions, things that I was really interested in. When I was a little kid growing up in Oakland, I, my dad took me to the Oakland Coliseum during baseball season, during football season and basketball season. I, so I grew up on the Warriors, the A's, the Raiders. Uh, in my adult life, I became more of a football fan, which um, I hope is not a problem on the baseball-oriented podcast here. But I still root for the A's. I have my whole adult life. So even though I live in L.A., I, frankly, I don't, I don't root for any L.A.-based teams. I'm still loyal to my hometown teams. And you find that a lot in Los Angeles. Uh, the only local team I really root for is my college team, USC. So... Being a Raiders fan for many years, I've been suffering sadly uh, at the performance of the team. Uh, you know, it's been over two decades since we've been to a Super Bowl and we lost the last Super Bowl we were in. But I'd go up uh, to the games uh, when the Raiders moved back to Oakland. 
I would fly up with a buddy from film school who was a Raiders fan from Fresno. And we flew up for years. And then the team, then we, we gave that up after a certain point. But what I noticed getting, going to the Raider games was the tailgate, the fan partying pregame was something out of the 1970s NFL films. You'd like approach the Coliseum from the airport shuttle and there would be a smoky haze over the parking lot. There was the East and West parking lot. And it was just so visual. And you'd arrive and you'd see campers from all over the Western states there, parked out, decked out. You'd have pigs on a spit. You'd have people set up tents. And this is not uncommon in other sports venues around the country. I saw it in Green Bay when I shot a fanatic project uh, there and, and other places as well. What really struck me was how the fans kept the spirit of the team alive, even though the players on the field were not necessarily living up to that standard back in those days, or, or well, I don't want to necessarily blame the players, but the team was not coming together, let's just say. You know, the product on the field was uh, very disappointing year in and year out. But the one thing that I noticed was, was the fans' enthusiasm. I noticed that about the Oakland A's also, very uh, determined fan base. You know, when I thought about what I could do as a photo- for a photography project, Fanatic Project was, was born. Uh, and it was really to do like an anthropological study of sports fans, of different sports around the world. And not just the teams that I love. In fact, I still have not done one on USC. I've done one on the Warriors, A's, and and Raiders, and I've done a couple on the Raiders, but I thought I wanted to explore what makes fans do what they do, be as enthused as they are, and to go all out and commit time, effort, money to this, you know, what, what was it that was beyond the game itself that brought the fans together and contributed to fan culture? And I wanted to see if there was a universal aspect to this in, in other countries and other sports around the world and, and around our country as well. So the first one I did, um, I, I went to Europe, UK, and Russia in 2018, and I photographed fans at the FA Cup, which was a, a soccer match between, at the time, Chelsea and Man United. And then on the plane, on the way over, I sat to a a local guy who told me about um, a rugby premiership game that was around the same time period. So I scrambled to get a ticket to that. And that, and the, uh, the FA cup was at Wembley stadium where I'd never been. And it was an honor to be at this stadium. And, and for the rugby uh, match, it was at Twickenham. I went to a cricket match at the Lord's cricket grounds. And I recommend that to any sports fan who is into stadiums and classic venues. It reminded me of, a, it's a cathedral of sports. And granted, I could only stay for about two and a half hours and I didn't know what the heck was going on in the game. Although some uh, local uh, British people from London were trying to explain it to me. But the food there is, in crazy, is incredible. And um, yeah, so gradually... Uh, I made my way back to Oakland, and that was the first um, fanatic project I did was a, a Oakland A's game versus Texas in 2018. 
Um, I had also come up for a Raider game that weekend too. So I sort of was able to kill two birds with one stone. And that led me going to Japan uh, eventually. Uh, I had uh, I was aware of Japanese baseball. I didn't know anything about it. And planning these trips is, <laughs> it's like producing a movie in a way, because not only are you planning your flights and your hotel, because you want to, if you're going to all the trouble and expense to document fans, you also want to see things around the city and around the country. So um, I had to plan a lot of things uh, for this and and getting tickets also is a challenge on the Japanese um, uh, websites for their local teams. It's not clear exactly where the seats are, if you br can bring cameras in, things of this nature. So I was able to find a guy, uh, a site actually. And um, let's see, I, I had bookmarked it here to share it with you, uh, called japanballtickets.com. And that was a expat, a uh, couple Western guys uh, run this site and they will help you get tickets. They'll help Westerners get tickets. And I recommend any baseball fan, any baseball nut fanatic, even if you're, even if you're going to Japan just as a tourist and you're looking for something interesting to do, go to a Japanese baseball game. It, it's so different than the games here. That is exciting, and I, before you guys mentioned cricket, I was I was thinking about that because I actually had the pleasure. I, I had I did go visit the Lord's what is it called? Um, Lord's Cricket Grounds. Yeah, Lord's in, Cricket Grounds. I did. Yeah. I visited as like you know a, a tour, but I did uh, I did actually go to a couple of the the. It's called a twenty twenty because basically, as you said, you were there for two and a half hours, so you're probably there for like a four day cricket test. But the, in yeah. there's also another form which is called it's just twenty outs basically. So it's kind of like mm -hmm. baseball, but like faster. It's right. so they they specifically compacted the three. It's basically right around three hours. And I did see a, a handful of matches of the Lancashire of the English like the, the English league of uh, of cricket, the Lancashire mm -hmm. Red Roses, and that was so much fun because it was compact. It it, it felt very baseballish, and I went with some of my American friends yeah. and. And the good thing about going to a cricket match in the UK is that surprisingly for a country, you probably know this, but for a country that loves drinking beer, you can't actually drink beer. You can't actually take your beer to a stadium at a soccer football match, but yeah. you can at a cricket match. Because I guess it, I guess they're thinking is, well, there's more refined people at the More sophisticated. That's right. Well, yeah. Who yeah. knows? Mm -hmm. But go, now I'm going over to the other side of the globe. When you were, when you were doing this... Uh, this project in Japan, how did you find it in the sense of you, you, you know, you laid out the picture perfectly about it in Oakland with the Raiders and how things are, it's almost like a slow build up to the actual game, that festivity. What is that? Is there, is there anything unique before the games? Because we've seen some videos where, you know, in South Korea or Japan, they have like synchronized chants during the game and the baseball games in Asia. But is there anything like, tailgating or congregating before a match in a uh, before a baseball game in, in Japan? Well, that, that's a great question. And that's really what the goal of this project uh, was. And I should say to, to clarify what fanatic project is, it's really a love letter to sports fans. It's not about the games or the players as much, although I do take a few pictures of what's going on on the field, just when I lay out my story and pictures. So people kind of get an idea. But it's really about taking portraits of sports fans and photographing fans. So my cameras, my camera is turned away from the field. It's really towards, 
what's going on in the stands. Uh, I wanted to explore that as a cultural uh, kind of phenomenon. As far as tailgating goes, um, the, the first uh, game I went to in Japan was um, the Hanshin Tigers, which is one of the oldest Nippon professional teams. Um, they play in the vicinity of Osaka, which is great, uh, a great city to see as a tourist. Uh, if you're into seafood, which I'm not a big seafood guy, you you definitely want to go to Osaka. And I took, I was able to take the train, got off at the stadium beforehand, and there were fans milling about, but not like, for instance, what I was used to in Oakland, where there were these giant parking lots on either side of the Oakland Coliseum where fans would tailgate. Uh, and that was part of the culture. I mean, that was almost, in some cases, more important than the game. Fans are milling about. Uh, they were the colors were so striking. Um, the, the Hanshin Tigers are um, yellow, white, and uh, black, and they were playing um, the uh, Hiroshima Carp, which are, who are red. It, for, for a lot of these games, there's usually thousands of opposing team fans at each game, usually located in the outfield, and they do their chant. You had mentioned the chants and the songs, and so there were fans that bring in some musical instruments like trumpets and horns and things of that nature and flags. You're, you're allowed to bring in huge flags. And at the Hanshin Tigers game, which the stadium is beautiful, it's uh, called Koshian Stadium. I'm sure my pronunciation is off, but it's in Nishimonoya, Japan. And I believe it opened in 1924. And it, um, it's covered in ivy from the outside. So it, it really looks like a classic old American, like a Wrigley Field cathedral of baseball. Baseball in Japan, which I learned and I didn't know, uh, goes way back to the turn of, the, of that of the century. And so there are uh, uh, songs basically for each player that comes to bat. And they, do the, and they repeat these songs and chants over and over again. And when the opposing team is at bat, they, they have their songs for their players. So it's really entertaining. Uh, they have these uh, beer girls, which um, walk up and down the stands. And they're usually young, attractive women who have these giant tanks of beer, Asahi or whatever on, on their backs. And they, they have these very kind of specific motions they do with their hands to alert the fans that they're there to get their attention and uh they get a workout i tell you these girls are, are amazing and they also have cheerleaders too in japanese baseball and i think if i recall they had um some sort of thing with some of the mascots like people in costumes another thing in japanese baseball is that each team or stadium has its own unique sev seventh inning stretch celebration so for instance the Hanshin Tigers, which are one of one of the venerable franchises in Japanese baseball, they have this thing where they do a balloon launch in the seventh inning stretch. So I have pictures of that uh, on my various social media sites if, if you're interested to see what the balloon launch looks like. It's these yellow balloons go up in the air. When I went to one other game when I was um, when I was in Tokyo called the Yakult Swallows. They're the kind of the secondary team in Tokyo. I, I think it was the, the Dragons, if I'm not mistaken. There's like a main team that are kind of like the Dodgers and they play in the nice stadium. The Yako Swallows play in a smaller stadium across town 
and really that interested me more. I wanted to see what the, what kind of the, um, uh, you know, the black sheep team uh, uh, and their fans looked like. And they do a thing called the umbrella dance. So they have these little umbrellas that they unfold and they move them up and down. I got video of that also when I was there. Um, so uh, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. The fans are very spirited and the atmosphere really feels different than American baseball. It, there's a lot of entertainment. It's a feast for the eyes and the ears. That, that sounds amazing. That's definitely been one of my things. I haven't been to Japan. I've been to other countries in Southeast Asia, but I haven't made oh, okay. it to Japan yet, which I definitely want to coincide with a baseball, their baseball yeah. season. So it sounds like Japanese baseball has no use for like the PA announcer where you where the, the, the players can't be picking their favorite salsa or hip hop or country salsa, the walk up song because the fans pick it for them. That's right. That's right. The fans have it all worked out. They are dialed in. And then I, I believe when they're on defense more, um, they have these inflatable bats, which they hit, which makes an incredible racket. And they, they have a sing songs and chants for that. The other thing is the food, of course. Uh, the yakitori, the chicken on skewers, the noodles. I mean, they have, uh, if I recall, hot dogs and things like that. But, uh, you know, I was not interested in that at all. I just wanted to go for like real, real Japanese food at the stadium, real Japanese stadium food. Because that's another thing I'm interested in is stadium food around the world and, or, and around our country. You know, what regional stadium food people enjoy. But, you know, I think the best thing about Japanese fans, not just baseball Japanese fans, but Japanese sports fans, they pick up after themselves. I remember in what was it? Everyone was amazed. I think Japan was in the 2010 World Cup in South Africa. And after the after after some random Japan match, like they had pictures of Japanese fans. Like they were the only people in the stands. They were picking up after themselves like that's Yeah, that's just brilliant. Uh, if, if only we could be inspired by that. That's right. That's right. I, I wish we could. Yeah, it's, you know, you mentioned that and, you know, going walking around Tokyo and I would just on a day where I would had a, a somewhere to go, I would try to walk uh, because you miss a lot taking the train or the subway in certain cities that have that, even though it's convenient. And I just try to get lost in the neighborhood and there's just no trash anywhere. It's <laughs> it's culturally it's so different than here I, I feel like i could go to japan 20 times and not have a and not have a better understanding of the culture there it, it's it's really a unique different place so. yeah i love how they have respect for themselves and respect of others it's like why would you why would you want to go to a place with this trash when i can just alleviate that by waiting until i get to the next to the, to the next trash bin that's right that's right and it also feels safe too safe at the games and you know, there's no real violence or anything like that between that that you see between opposing fans. Everything is very tame and and uh, pleasant, pleasant experience. That that's honestly yeah. wonderful. You're mentioning that you had spent decades in the film industry. And obviously, you've, you've done this project, and uh, people will we'll share your website at the end of our conversation. You have amazing uh, film that you that you've posted online. How has your time in the film industry helped? potentially make you a better photographer faster or is it, has it always been parallel if you were just always taking a film on your own outside of uh, you know your day job for a long time in the film industry that's a great question um, I think that 
really at, at film school at USC. I was more interested in, in the camera and lining up shots than writing uh, projects or directing. Um, so I was invited um, by a couple people to shoot their advanced projects at USC. Um, uh, one of them went on to become a showrunner on Breaking Bad, actually, um, Peter Gould. And um, so a lot of people that I worked with went on to bigger and better things, which is really kind of fun. But uh, as far as setting me up, since I was a camera assistant, I was in a unique position to basically, in my professional career, apprentice um, award-winning, uh, very talented cinematographers. A lot of these people went on to win Academy Awards or a couple of things that I worked on got nominated, but it was a chance to see how they set up shots, um, how to learn how composition, I tried to let the light dictate composition. I, I'd look for situations or scenarios where there, uh, there's interesting lighting, something interesting. You, you don't always have that option when you're kind of doing documentary style for lack of a better word, still shoots like I was doing of the fans. Uh, I'd always try to pick interesting backgrounds, but the fans themselves were so colorful and visual. Uh, they, they really were a great landscape, just their faces. The other thing was preparation. Uh, when I was a camera assistant, I, I was responsible for uh, gathering and prepping all the gear uh, for a shoot for a feature at, at the rental house. So for instance, at Panavision or someplace like that. So you'd go in there for a week or two or three, if it was a feature film and test all the cameras, the cables, the lenses, make sure you had all the accessories you need, remote focuses, things of that nature, all the tools we needed to uh, achieve the complex shots of today. And so it was really a lot of responsibility, particularly if you're going out of the country on a, on a job where you couldn't just send a teamster you know, into Hollywood to get a cable if you had a, you know, if you needed something, um, you really had to make sure you had doubles, triples of everything. And that helped me on these shoots, particularly going out of the country, was to be organized, to have a backup body, for instance, to bring two cameras into stadiums. And a lot of these stadiums don't allow professional cameras. Uh, and I didn't have press passes for any of this stuff. I was really, I bought a ticket like every other fan and I went in as a fan uh, observing and taking pictures. So I, I used, um, uh, there's a nice Panasonic Lumix that they have that has a, a one inch sensor, which uh, takes great pictures and uh, Sony RX100. These are smaller, more compact cameras, but you can um, change into professional mode. So you can control you know, the shutter, the exposure, everything yourself, which is what I was doing. What it taught me, my uh, career as a camera assistant was to be organized and to do all my research, to double check things like, you know, if I was going from China to Japan and I had a game and I had one of these baseball games coming up uh, to double check that the tickets with the ticket guy that he was sending it to the right hotel and all this kind of thing. So there's a lot of logistics involved. And um, I always, it taught me to be early, to, you know, leave early. So I wasn't under pressure of trying to find a new place, especially in another country. I was surprised at how little English was spoken uh, in Japan. So uh, there wasn't a lot of communication between my 
self and my subjects other than me pointing at my camera and pointing at them and and they knew what I wanted and, and that sort of thing. So uh, learn, I would say apprenticing under some great cinematographers so I could learn to work on the fly a little better and organization, really all these, all these shoots, the one I did with the, in England and eventually ended in Russia at the world cup in 2018 and the shoot in, in Japan, all were like producing little movies uh, from a, from a production standpoint. I love how you're saying that you, you set up your shots, whether it's obviously for a film or for your own photography projects. I use two cameras. I'm an amateur photographer, but I mean, I mean, we have to emphasize amateur. I like, I use the Polaroid SX70 and I have a Minolta, what is it? The MRT 101, I think is like that very, the 35 millimeter click. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. Most of my film come out very badly. I think it's either, I think it's operator, (laughs) operator error. My, the Minolta, just recently the, my Minolta, the, the film, the door broke and so i oh, had no. an entire roll ruined i didn't know that until afterwards oh. i actually i actually send my film to be developed right there in la to uh what is it dark dark room lab dark lab room They're okay in, are they in the valley i think so you just send it out to them and like in a week or so they they you know send out your 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 35 millimeter roll and they say they send you back you know whatever you ordered and good they, good on you shooting film still my, my respect respect i'm i'm all pretty much digital these days but well let me ask you I'm going to retire the asset, the, the Polaroid, even though I love the, the, that's not the novelty, but just the charm of having an instant yeah. film. Yeah. What should I be using going forward? That's a tough one. It depends on what kind of stuff you're doing and what you're using it for. I mean, I'm a Canon guy. So I, I went from my old AE1 that I inherited from my parents, uh, film cam, 35 millimeter film camera and, and to a, 5D Mark II, and then a 5D Mark IV, and now I'm shooting an R5. This is, for, you want to shoot film still, huh? Portraits or just going out and about. Yeah. Obviously, I'm not planning on going and taking it at a local high school football game or you know anything yeah. like that. Right. Um, you might want to look at a used uh, Leica or something like that. Uh, in some of these camera stores, uh, they have some really good used equipment, and Leica can be really expensive. But um, a lot of people are trading that stuff in to transition over to digital. So if you're doing portraits and things of that nature, Leica has such beautiful glass for that stuff. So uh, I'm not sure what the numbers are off the top of my head because I'm not really a Leica guy. But that or (laughs) I don't know, you know, if you could find like a used Hasselblad, you'd you'd be amazed at what you can find on, um, on eBay. And if you really want your stuff to look unique and special, then I, I'd look into Hasselblad or, or Leica if you're doing portraits and, and you still want to shoot film. Yeah, the, the camera I really had my eye on is the Minolta CLE, which was kind of like the Minolta was making Leicas for Leicas, but they just made like their own, I don't say knockoff version, but like, uh, you know, super high quality, but it didn't, it just didn't say like on it. And they stopped, they stopped making them, mm-hmm. I think like in the seventies or something. Resale that's over it's over a thousand dollars and it's like I need to be sure that I am good enough to actually have this piece of piece of art in my hands to be able to justify the that price. You know there's some schools of thought on this. You know the great thing about photography as a art form is that you learn something every time you go out, and 
I do. I, I, I've gotten good and, and fast just from repetition. Unfortunately, COVID kind of derailed Fanatic Project for a while. And because of some other health things I got left over from the film industry, I've got to do a shoulder replacement and I've got to get an epidural in my back. Just I'm falling apart. But um, sound like a retired NFL quarterback. God, yeah. Well, this is this is what almost thirty years of uh, lifting thousands of pounds of camera gear in in the motion picture industry can can do to somebody. So seriously consider it if you want to be a camera assistant. So I have not got it up up and running again, but I'm dying to. I already know some things that I want to shoot. I want to shoot some regional uh, soccer games in Scotland and Ireland because I've been researching some of these stadiums and like the baseball stadiums and some of them in Japan that have this great history. Same with some of these stadiums there that are a hundred years old. But anyway, I'm going off on a tangent. You were asking me about uh, cameras. Uh, yeah, that, that I, I was just considering the middle to CLE, but the resale value online is well over a thousand dollars. And I'm like, that's a right. steep price to pay for someone who's, you know, a weekend photographer. Yeah. It, it's, you know, it's a way to look at it though, because it's it's your palette, it's your brush. And I firmly believe that to go out with something that you really like to work with, that's it, that's a key thing in photography. And and frankly, a lot of people that I know are really almost more into the gear than actual photography. That's a thing with photography. It has a real cult kind of attraction to the gear. It's like people who are into watches and just like, you know, into collecting fine watches, people are into collecting fine cameras. For me, it's, it's always been a little, and you can tell probably by talking to me, it's been a little more utilitarian use that I really want gear that I can, um, you know, toss around in a suitcase or, or bag or bring with me. Uh, I went to Antarctica earlier this year and I needed tough gear that could withstand the elements. That's where you also want to bring a backup body, by the way, um, <laughs> and as much backup stuff as you can fit, because uh, you know you never know. Yeah, but I'm not, uh, I'm not a fan of the cold, and especially you know you living in LA, cold. What is it? Uh, I love LA summers because it's hot during the day, and then at nighttime it's like in the 60s. It's like sweater weather. It's perfect. It's it doesn't great. actually ever get cold, you know. That's right, and that's one of the things that people love about going up to Chavez Ravine and catch a Dodgers game during the summer. There's nothing like it. You're there in your shorts and a t-shirt. It's at night, e even in the fall or the spring. Same, you know. You you go to Philippe's before the game, get yourself a French dip, and you and you head up there. Philippe's is a is a classic um, old school restaurant. They claim to have invented a French dip sandwich. So you'll see a lot of Dodger fans there pregame. Uh, anyway, sorry, I digress again. Yeah, I, I think it's it's good to find something bottom line that you're comfortable using, that you feel confident in. As far as worrying about your skill level or your artistic level, this is something that's always going to evolve. I mean, I look at the pictures I took on Fanatic Project even at the beginning, and I look at the ones that that were more recent, and I feel that the, that the pictures got better. And, and so I do a lot of concert photography, but again, shooting as a fan from the crowd. So I, I feel that um, where you pick to your, your seat is very important for background, for band members lining up, things of that nature. 
so I feel I've got better at that as things go on. I'm taking away two good points for me because you're talking about the gear. And I, as much as I love Polaroid, I don't like that the SX-70 is, is basically just like a box. And so it's just very clunky to be carrying it around all day. And then with the Minolta, it, it's, it's actually made, like, there's actually real metal in it. And it's pretty heavy. You, you know, I still yeah. have my strap, but it's like after an hour or two, it weighs yeah. down on you. And I, and I just want a smaller thing. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to, I don't know, like B&H or something and just hold it in my hands before I decide this is the one for me because I want something yeah. again, if I'm walking around, I want to be able to just whip it out and, you know, take candid pictures of people and things. That's right. And, and you know, you make a great point. You, to go to, to have, to have access to a place like B&H or any of the great camera stores in, in uh, New York, uh, it's like Sammy's camera here to go in and be able to hold the thing and look at it and compare it because we're so into our online buying that we there's not that tactile relationship and between and a camera really it should be an extension of your head and your eye and and it should be something comfortable and light uh, per, you know depending on what you're doing for me doing fanatic project i needed compact cameras that i could bring in and not draw attention to myself so and a lot of venues some around internationally do allow detachable lens cameras in but you have to research that and sometimes you can't get a straight answer but actually, the guys who got me the uh, the tickets, uh, I asked them about that, um, uh, and they said that that you could take cameras in in in, in situations in certain stadiums. So, Ariel, you've been giving me a lot of advice. I'm going to give you I'm going to give you one one piece of advice. If you want to do USC, try to do it as soon as possible before Caleb Williams decides to turn pro. <laughs> And then you well, won't be able to, you're going to have to fly to like some terrible town like yeah. Chicago or Carolina to see the poor guy fail in the NFL. <laughs> it's too late. I missed my shot with Caleb. He's not playing in the bowl game tonight and um, he's he's going to go pro. So um, it's going to have to be whatever Lincoln Riley or, can or, or try to get media pass to go to his pro day because, you know, they always have those yeah. throwing for the scouts and maybe you, you right. go down to, uh, to yeah. take some film of uh, Caleb Williams, the <laughs> yeah, probably the first pick in the National Football League draft in a few yeah. months. Probably, probably, yeah. Eric, I want to thank you for joining us. But before we let you go, you we talked about food. We talked about uh, Tommy's, the, the burger joint. Yeah, you just talked yeah. about the French onion dip or just a few minutes ago. What I always love to travel. I love L.A. I love going to L.A. If someone were to go to L.A. to go see a USC football game, a Dodgers baseball game, it, it doesn't matter where. What are your preferred local places for coffee, a drink, food, whatever? Oh, um, well, let's see. Uh, I live on the west side of L.A. in Marina del Rey. There's a small local chain of coffee places called Tanner's. Uh, there's one in Culver City, and there's one I like near the beach in Playa del Rey, where you could literally walk, get your coffee and walk to the beach. Playa del Rey is a very kind of out-of-the-way little beat old LA style beach town, like an old kind of surf town. And Tanner's Coffee is a great place to just grab a book, hang out inside, have some good coffee. And they have really awesome pastries in there too, and sandwiches. Uh, it's got a lot of atmosphere to it. Uh, there's, boy, well, and as far as a, like a bar also in Playa del Rey, which is just south of me, in the marina, there's a little bar called the Harbor Room. And it's, and when I say little, I'm not joking. <clears throat> this is like a watering hole 
for people who are boat drivers, you get the feeling, you know, there's some like your sort of hipster Hollywood types who come down just because of the place. It's attached to an Italian restaurant called Cantalini's, which is an old school red sauce Italian place. So they let, while they don't serve hard liquor, they do beer and wine. You can, there's a little passage, literally a passageway from the restaurant to this bar called the Harbor Room which uh, they allow you to get your drink there and take it to the restaurant if you want. And when my dad was alive, we, we would go there for our victory celebration to have Italian food, but we'd always go get him his ice chilled vodka first at the Harbor, uh, the Harbor Room. Priorities. Great little, little dive bar for a really nice place uh, on, Sun, on Sunset Boulevard. You'll go to a place called the Tower Bar. Uh, which is in the Sunset Tower Hotel, Sunset Plaza Hotel. It's on the south side of Sunset Boulevard, which is right in the sweet spot of everything that you uh, want to see on Sunset Boulevard. All the music venues, like the Whiskey A Go-Go, places like that. The Tower Bar is a restaurant, like a steak place, um, but it's a great place to drink. There's almost always a celebrity sighting there if you're into that sort of thing. I know Mick Jagger goes there when he's in town. Oh, Musso and Frank in Hollywood, old school Hollywood uh, steak place where you've got the uniformed, uh, where you've got the waiters with their names stitched on their jackets and bartenders. And these guys have been around forever. One old timer, I think he just retired. And he always made Keith Richards his drinks back when Keith was drinking. Keith would sit at one of the booths there um, and order the flannel cakes, which they used to have. Um, they may still do breakfast there. I'm not positive. But that's a like a steak place, an old school Hollywood place. Been around since the 20s, I believe. I've shot in there several times because it just had, it's like the red booths, red leather booths. And um, we, there was a movie called Hitchcock, which I did. We shot a big scene in there. Um, uh, that's a great spot. But I can't emphasize enough Tommy's if you're in LA. Yeah, you know, in and out it's sort of in that burger war thing with Shake Shack Five Guys, these chains. But I say if you want a real LA burger experience, you go to Tommy's and you get a gut bomb. You get a chili burger, chili cheeseburger. You get the chili fries. And I tell you, you'll you'll be in heaven. And uh, and I mentioned Philippe's. Um, uh, if you're going to a Dodgers game, uh, it's in Chinatown, oddly enough, but it's a um, place where they they claim there are two places in LA that claim to have invented the French dip sandwich. Um, Philippe's is one, and they also have full breakfast and pastrami sandwiches, turkey, everything. If you're not into French dip, uh, that place is awesome. In fact, I may be going there soon with a a neighbor in my building. We were looking to go to comfort food places around LA and that was definitely on our list. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, to definitely checking out Tommy's next time in LA. In, in LA. Eric, I want to thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking with you. Do you. Let us know where we can find some of your work online if you want to share anything from uh, for your, your, your social media as well. Okay, thanks. Um, uh, probably Instagram is the best place to experience Fanatic Project. Um, it, it's fanatic underscore project on Instagram. Cause I also have my own account, which is at Harry zoom, where you'll see just some of my other photography, or 
you can see all the pictures uh, that I've done, which which I think you did off my photography website, which is zimagery.com, Z-I-M-M-A-G-E-R-Y.com. And, you, and there's a button for, um, there's a Fanatic Project um, gallery. Uh, but on Instagram, there, it gave me, there's more of an opportunity where I sort of explained what was going on on a lot of these shoots of sporting fans at sporting events around the world. But on either one of those, there's also my rock photography and travel photography. So if you're curious about Antarctica, there's a big Antarctica gallery there too, which I did this year, which is really cool. And um, lots of rock stuff too. The conversation with Ari is inspiring me to pick up my camera and just take random pictures of squirrels and crocodiles and whatever. And also it's inspiring me to fix my audio. Again, I apologize, but thank you for Harry for spending some time with us. And to celebrate Harry and the Fanatic Project, what I'm drinking when I was producing, editing, and recording this podcast is a delicious drink from the land of the rising sun. It's called Amahagan. Of course, I don't speak Japanese, but Amahagen, it's a malt whiskey from Nagahara Distillery in Shiga, Japan. This is a nice winter drink, and it just gives you that nice heat when the malt whiskey goes down your esophagus. No, nay, when the Amahagen goes down the esophagus. I'm having it neat, but no, no, I lie. What am I talking about? You know, I read that for whiskey, you should do is have it neat but have a splash of water because apparently the H2O does something to the whiskey, the composition of it to open it up and make it better. Nevertheless, drink it the way you want to. I don't care, and you shouldn't care how people see what you drink. So cheers to the good people at the Nagahara Distillery for this delicious Amahagen malt whiskey. And while you're drinking and you're scrolling through social media, give us a follow if you want on Twitter last call 4040 or give us a follow on instagram last call baseball or if you don't want to follow us that's okay too thanks for listening to last call baseball be great and get home safe